Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sister sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, Let us go to Judea again. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off, and many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him, but Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live, and everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house consoling her saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the reading of God's word. Well, good morning. Uh, my name is Eugene. I'm a member of staff here. Really good and excited to have you here and, and to share God's word. Uh, thank you, Claire, for reading. I know it was a bit of a longer text, uh, but I wanted us to capture the whole narrative so that we could expound as much as we can um, from it. If you've been with us for the last couple of weeks, you will know that we're in the middle of uh, the Gospel of John, and this is kind of one of the most important passages in the story as it serves as a crux, as the story is about to shift. If you've been with us 
at least for the last four sermons, including this one, um, you will know that we've been focusing on uh, the, the signs and wonders that John uh, records, and especially on the healings. And, and before we get into the text, I want you to just take a big step back and realize we started with the healing of the royal official's son. Uh, we moved to the healing uh, of, of the one that was invalid by the pool, who probably had leprosy. Uh, last week, I preached on uh, the healing of the man who was born blind, and today we have the ultimate healing, the resurrection of Lazarus. And if you pay attention closely, you'll see these healings are intensifying by severity and also by, by how much of a miracle Jesus is performing, and for a reason, because it's with this healing that Jesus now begins his journey to the cross, to his eventual death. And why is that so important for us? You know, this year has been, uh, not even this year, the past two years feels like it's been a decade uh, due to a lot of issues, whether it's COVID, whether it's politics, whether it's suffering, whether it's vocation, whether it's Twitter blowing up, whatever it may be, there's a lot going on. In the past couple of years, one thing that has stayed the same through all of that is the amount of suffering that we face. And throughout this text, the question is proposed that's an all, it, it's an age-old question. How can Jesus, how can God allow his people to suffer? It's, if you were in philosophy in college, it was probably, a, a, you know, some sort of assignment that you were assigned. How can an all-loving and all-powerful God allow his people to suffer? And it's a heavy question. Um, I don't want to presume easy answers. I'm not here to tell you just suck it up because that is definitely not what Jesus is telling you. So I hope you can take what I say with a grain of salt. But I, I want to propose this, that in, within this text, there's a lot of smarter people that try to answer the why part of that question. Why people suffer, why God allows them to suffer. I am not sure, and I'll say this even clearly, the scripture doesn't reveal the why. But the scriptures, and especially the story, it does reveal the what. The purpose, the, the reason that there is a what that God is doing with our suffering. If you pay attention, I know it was a long text, but if you pay attention, the question gets proposed to Jesus all the time. Why did you not heal this man from his suffering? Why did you allow him to succumb to his suffering? And I want to propose this. The reason Jesus allows us, allows anyone to suffer is he wants not to take it away per se, but he wants to redeem that suffering. Jesus does not answer why he allows suffering, but he clearly shows what he is doing with it. He is trying to redeem it. You see, if you're living as a human being, there is a tension that we all face, and that tension is that we suffer. And deep down inside, I'll tell you this, no matter where you are in your faith, whether you consider yourself a mature believer, whether you consider yourself a skeptic, whether you consider yourself far away from religion, in a room large enough like this, I know it encompasses a whole spectrum of the faith. The one thing that binds all of us together is suffering. More than what we can say that we're passionate about more than our interest, because even those, those can kind of contrast with people. The one thing that we all share with every human being in this room is that we suffer. And again, varying different levels, maybe the, the heaviest suffering has yet to come, but that's the one thing that binds us. And the tension that you should face is the question that every human being, every society, every philosophy deals with is what do we do with this suffering? And, and this is also 
thing I want to point out, oftentimes in, in a secular society like ours, in a Western American society that we live in, it often scoffs at faith and Christianity or any religion because of this dilemma. How can you believe in God? How can you have faith in something outside when we have to deal with the suffering and pain of the everyday life of a human being? And I want to say this, it's a valid question which we'll get into, but I want to propose this before we get there. The alternative, what society offers an alternative to, to faith in Christ is not that heartening. Um, Steve Jobs, I'm sure everyone knows who that is in this room. Uh, he's Elon Musk before he went insane, basically. And in 2005, in, in the prime of Apple, uh, he, he has a, a speech and he talks about death. And in 2005, I think he encapsulates so well what secular society tries to do with death. It tries to normalize it. It tries to say, oh, this is just, hey, hey, just suck it up. This is just a part of life. This is what he writes. No one wants to die. Even people who want to go to heaven don't want to die to get there. And yet death is a destination we all share. No one has ever escaped it. And that is as it should be because death is very likely the single best invention of life. It is life's change agent. It clears out the old to make way for the new. Right now, the new is you, but someday, not too long from now, you will gradually become the old and be cleared away. Sorry to be so dramatic, but it is quite true. That's kind of what society offers us in alternative. Hey, don't have faith in God, just deal with death because it's a normal part of life. But deep down inside, all of us here know that we can't believe that. Yes, it is a part of life. Yes, it does happen like the circle of life as Lion King tells us. But for us to believe that we just become fertilizer to feed the next generation uh, as our bodies decompose, it doesn't sit with you right no matter who you are. And this is the thing. It didn't even sit well with Steve Jobs. If you know the story about Steve Jobs, at the end of his life he's diagnosed with uh, terminal cancer. And there's a great biography by uh, Walter Isaacson that as, as he's dying, he invites Walter Isaacson to, to write about his life. And this is how Walter ends the autobiography of Steve Jobs. He ends it by penning what Steve Jobs thought about in his last kind of dying moments. And he writes this. It's a stark contrast to what he believed in 2005. I would like to think that something survives after you die. It's strange to think that you accumulate all this experience, maybe a little wisdom, and it just goes away. So I really want to believe that something survives, that maybe your consciousness endures. Why did Steve switch up? Well, tragically, he had to face death. And even though he knew in the back of his mind, yes, yes, this is just a part of life, deep down inside, when he faced death in its eyes, he said, this is not right. But the problem is, in our society, we do everything we can to make death pleasant. There's what I call a soulful dissonance in with how we try to deal with death. Uh, I've been at a, a fair share of funerals in the last couple of years, and it's always struck me that in Western funerals, we do our best to, to make it light. We do our best to make it heartening. We, we, there's like, you know, a little harps playing. Uh, oftentimes the coffin is this little plush little carriage that makes it seem like this, hey, it's just death, it's all right. And the body itself, it's, it's manicured, right? If it's an open casket, so often the body is fake to actually seem like it's still alive, so that's presentable. We say things like, oh, yeah, he passed away last Tuesday. 
We can never deal with death head on. And why? Because I would say as, as a pastor who believes in scripture that we're haunted. We're haunted by the Garden of Eden when it told us in the Garden of Eden, life should never end. And every human soul goes back to that time somehow through their spiritual DNA and says, wait a second, this is not right. Even Julian Barnes, who, who's an uh, agnostic author, puts it best. I don't believe in God, but I sure do miss him. We do want to believe that death should not be normal. Well, if that's the case, then how does Jesus deal with our suffering and pain and death? Again, if you go back to the text, one thing that should throw any reader off, especially in the ancient Near East time, is that Jesus lacks a hurry to get to Lazarus. In verse 5, he's told, hey, Lazarus is about to die. It's a terminal illness. It most likely, most commentators, it could be cancer. And they just didn't know what it was at that time. But he's dying. What are you going to do? Verse 5, John makes this clear. Jesus hears this, verse 5. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So Jesus' love is, is shown. I love this family that's dealing with this pain. How does he continue? Verse 6. So when he, Jesus, heard that Lazarus was, was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Two days, like why? Like even for a modern reader, you're like, oh, this, this, this is kind of weird. Like if as a pastor, if I heard one of our members was dying and you heard Jane and I were like, oh, that's, that's sad, but we're going to continue on with our staff meeting. That's basically what Jesus is doing. Why does he do that? Why does he allow Mary and Martha to suffer? Why does he allow us to suffer? And this is the thing. Jesus waits till the very last moment to ensure that Lazarus is dead. He, he, and this is, at the end, if you think about it, he waits two days. It takes a day to get there. And at the end, it's revealed if he's waited four days to get to Lazarus. Why is that so significant? Uh, for the Jewish times, they often believe that uh, if you died, there was three days left for the soul to reenter the body before your body decomposed. So what is Jesus doing? It sounds almost cruel. He's waiting till the suffering is at its apex, at its climactic moment, and then arrives when it seems like all hope is lost. Why? Why does Jesus do that? I'll switch it on to us. Why does Jesus do that for our own lives? Because this is the thing. For many of us, you have suffered. I don't know what your suffering is. It all varies, right? Like, we have simple sufferings. Like I play fantasy football, and I always turn my notifications off, and then after church, I turn them on. And my suffering is I never get notifications. I, I lost that week, right? But all of us, there's simple sufferings like that, but there's greater sufferings that you face. Maybe you found out that a loved one is about to pass. Maybe you know your job is on the brink of not being there next week. And you ask yourself, how can I believe in Jesus when this is caving into me? Well, why does Jesus wait in verse 4, I think he reveals the reason of his waiting. See, in verse 4, Jesus hears that Lazarus is dying. And he tells his disciples this. But when Jesus heard that, he said, The illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that I am waiting here, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. The Son of God may be glorified through it. That sounds a little egotistical. Like Jesus, are you saying you're waiting for suffering to happen so that you can have glory? That's not exactly what Jesus is saying. 
what Jesus is trying to get at is that in our suffering, there is a greater clarity to our lives and what holds us together. And oftentimes, I don't know why it happens, but I promise you this, Jesus is using that to clarify your gaze at him. To put it in my own words, I often say this, you don't know what stitches you together until you're being pulled apart. You don't know what holds you together until you're being pulled apart. You think you know. We think as long as I get that position, that real estate, then I'll be happy. But you know when that actually comes to test, if that does give you satisfaction? When you are suffering. You know, in AP Physics, uh, I remember, I didn't do well in that class, but when we were in that class, I remember there was an assignment where if you, you probably remember this too, you're given a couple like almost wood-like toothpicks and told to build a bridge. And oftentimes, uh, it, what, what the competition is, who can build the strongest bridge? And I remember uh, we, our team, I, I, I didn't do much, but our team, we focused on the aesthetics. Like, let's make this bridge look beautiful, right? So we brought this bridge, it, we painted it, it looked beautiful. And then I remember this one bridge, I was just like, that's not going to hold, right? That's like, that, that looks like it's trash. But if you remember in any, any bridge, what they do is they, they encounter a stress test on a bridge. And any, any building does this. It puts on stress. It puts on a type of weight on that building or that architecture to see how strong it actually is. The aesthetics don't matter. So I remember what it does in that class is we held that bridge over two tables and there was a little hook that held weight and we would put books slowly on. After the second book, our beautiful bridge collapsed. But I remember that one bridge that looked super janky and I was like, well, I don't know what you guys did, but book after book after book after book, the stitchings held. Why does Jesus allow us to suffer? I don't know exactly why, but what is happening, he's trying to give us a glimpse of who he actually is. The invitation, the first invitation I give you is this. In your suffering, just as Jesus invites Mary and Martha, I wonder if we suffer rather than just wallowing. And we should leave room for grief as Mary and Martha do and even as Jesus does. But in the midst of our grief and mourning, allow that to be a time of clarity for your soul. Suffering clears up your conscience more than anything else in the world. Because this is the thing, everyone inside of us, we have something that we think is holding us together. But put it to test when you suffer. Because Jesus is saying is when you suffer, I will shine because you will see I provide everything you need. And what is it that Jesus offers us then? In the suffering that Mary and Martha are facing, what do Mary and Martha see? They see not an idea they see not a creed, they see not a theological statement, but they see a person. See, trusting a person is so much more trustworthy than trusting an idea. Um, I often speak with people and, and, you know, often when I, as a pastor, I ask them, you know, how's your faith doing? How are you doing spiritually? And a lot of them, oh, it's just not working for me. And, and I wondered as I just... I'm able and have the blessing to speak with a lot of people that Christianity, it doesn't work for a lot of us because Jesus remains more in our minds than in our hearts. Because I think for a lot of us, Jesus is more of an idea, that Christianity is more of an idea, a thought system, a philosophy, more than an actual relationship. And this is the thing, if that's how you approach Christianity, it's not going to work. Because ideas, theological statements are logical. They make sense, but life does not and what Jesus offers in contrast is not an idea but himself. 
If you go back to the story, as Martha uh, encounters Jesus, if you think about it, uh, Martha and Mary, they're both, the same questions are there with them. Why weren't you here? We're hearing stories about you healing the blind, you healing even our enemies, uh, official son, and yet you don't come for my brother? Like, you, Jesus, you told us you love us, and you're not here, and they're distraught. And Martha, in verse 23, sorry, 22, she says this, or sorry, verse 21, I apologize. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had just been here, my brother would not have died. But to give her credit, she replies, but even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. It's, it's a miraculous statement. How does Martha respond? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Um, oftentimes it was in Jewish tradition to believe that when God, whenever he brought his Messiah, obviously it's Jesus, that there would be a resurrection where the dead would finally come to life in the last day. And Martha's saying like, yeah, I, I believe in this system and this idea, Jesus. I get it. Listen closely to how Jesus responds. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. I am the resurrection and the life. Uh, that's extremely important. Following Jesus, what Jesus is telling us, it's not about following the right ideas. It's about being in relationship with him. Jesus says, that doctrine you believe, Martha, I am him embodied. What Jesus offers us is not just a creed. He, think about this. We're about to take communion uh, after the message. And Jesus, when he leaves his disciples, he does not leave them a book, a system. He leaves them with a meal. Why? Because he's saying, when I leave, remember that I'm trying to be in relationship. What do you do with the meal? It's, it's, for, it's to share life with those around you. That's why we take communion to remind ourselves that we are in a relationship with Christ. And we know this. And yet we don't follow through. Uh, if you're a young parent, you'll know this too. Uh, Eli, my son's around four or four and a half. And I've been, uh, you know, signing him up for a lot of uh, sports camps, especially soccer. I, I really wanted to do well in soccer. Uh, because in my mind, as a Korean American, that's the highest chance he has to, like, get a scholarship. Realistically, right? So I'm putting him in. And I, and I played a little bit in high school. So there's a bit where I'm with him. And I just want to, like, teach him the idea. Like, this is what you do. And I remember uh, recently, he's just like, they're trying to teach him how to dribble. And he's just like, I, Dad, I can't do it. And he gets really frustrated. And what I used to do, and I still kind of do, is like, let me teach you the process. Like, this is the idea. Feel the ball with your feet. Look up and down. This is what you should do. This is how you trap the ball. And I, in my mind, I keep thinking, as long as I give my son the right ideas, he's going to succeed. But yesterday was actually the camp where we went to every week. And we go, and I'm going to be honest, like most parents, like there's moments where like I'm watching him. There's also moments where like I'm on my phone, I'm just not looking. And you have to realize kids are very aware. And this is the thing, I've taught them all the right ideas as much as I can. But in that moment when there's pressure, when the coach is saying dribble and there's suffering and pain, there's all this in his life at that moment. It feels like the world is caving in on him. He looks to me and he sees me on the phone. He says, Appa, look at me. Look at me, right? Oh, shoot, my bad. I was like, yeah, yeah, what's up, dude? And I look at him, and he smiles, and then he plays. And I realize I can teach him all the right ideas, but he cannot trust ideas. The only thing that he can trust is a relationship. That is what Jesus is giving us, the incarnation. When Jesus comes, as John 1 tells us, he doesn't say the word became word. The word became an idea. The word became flesh. 
God became human. We no longer serve and worship a God that is above. We worship a God that is right in front of us. We are called to enter into a relationship with this Savior. Not an idea. And this is the thing. As, as God enters into his human body, how does he deal with our suffering? As he, as he enters the human body, he also realizes this. He feels the suffering too. You see, the problem oftentimes with Greek goddesses and gods is they're so removed from humanity that they often treat humanity like a, chess, like a chessboard. It's just a game to them. But Jesus is very different than any other god written in any other religion. Jesus comes, and again, it's a relationship we're called to enter into him. And what that means is, so often the answer, the question of, hey, how can an all-loving God, an all-powerful God, leave their people to suffer? It's a theoretical statement. And often what we think of in that question, the, the box we put God in is he's like a kid with an ant farm at home, just messing around saying, oh, I wonder what these ants are going to do as I cause suffering. And oftentimes we can tempt ourselves to believe God to be like that. But if you look closely at this story, you realize that God, as he becomes human, as Jesus is there, he says, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the embodied God in flesh. I am here not to give you an idea, but a relationship. Then what does he do? He gives what Tim Keller says, a ministry of truth and a ministry of tears. And it's so beautiful when you think of it this way. Just as God has become flesh, he meets also us where we're at. If you take a bigger step back in the story, you realize Martha and Mary have two very different needs. Martha needs a logical explanation. She, she's like, Jesus, I don't get it. Why, why aren't you here? My brother would have lived, but hey, I still believe in you. And what Jesus offers is a ministry of truth. I am the resurrection and the life. But when Mary comes into the picture, Jesus flips. Mary comes and she comes angry, saying in private, oh, sorry, in, in verse 33, sorry, 32. Now, when Mary came to see where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet. She is just, she is at the end of herself. She doesn't need a logical explanation. She is angry. She is pissed. And she comes to Jesus and she says this, Lord, if you had been there, my brother would not have died. This is the thing. Some of us, we need good TED Talks, good sermons, good books, and that's great. But I'm going to be honest, some of us, even including myself at times, we don't need more information. We need presence. And what does Jesus offer Mary? She does not, he does not rebuke her. Verse 33, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and greatly troubled. He said, where have you laid them? And he said, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Jesus offers Martha a ministry of truth, but Jesus also offers Mary a ministry of tears. What that means for us is this, because you can be like, hey, that's cool. Like he does that for Mary and Martha, but you, know, you say, hey, we're supposed to be in a relationship with Jesus. He's not physically here. Like what am I supposed to do? Well, if you remember what I said is this healing leads Jesus to the cross. And what the cross gives us is both truth and tears. What the cross reveals to us is that Jesus meets us where we're at because he feels every suffering, every pain we have felt. And I want this to be very clear. We worship a God who, when he became human, also took on the human weaknesses. Jesus wept, not out of indignation, not out of this like, oh my gosh, these stupid people. No, he, he feels that pain. It's the only God who does that. 
Ron Rollheiser puts it really well. Be up on the screen. Simply put, Jesus treats Lazarus exactly the same way as God the Father treats Jesus. Jesus is deeply and intimately loved by his Father, and yet his Father doesn't rescue him from humiliation, pain, and death. In, his, in Jesus' lowest hour, when he is humiliated, suffering, and dying on the cross, Jesus is jeered by the crowd with the challenge, if God is your Father, let him rescue you. But there's no rescue. Instead, Jesus dies inside the humiliation and pain, just like Lazarus, just like Mary, just like Martha. God raises Jesus up only after his death. Do you know why it's so significant that we have a Savior who died? Because he faces the same fear and suffering and pain of death that we do. We have a God who wants to enter into a relationship. And we're like, man, Jesus, why don't you just right every wrong? Why, don't you just, why didn't you just heal Lazarus? Because this is the thing. If he was going to right every wrong, every suffering, every pain, every death, then we would all perish. Paul says in Romans, the wages of sin are death. The reason we suffer is from our own sinful nature. And yet Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to right every wrong, but I'm not going to make you perish. I'm going to make myself perish. The cross is the greatest proof that we have a relationship that will remain faithful even when the world is coming down on us. And not just his death, but his resurrection. As Jesus is resurrected just as Lazarus is, we have the greatest hope for all of our suffering and sin. We now have a place to put it. We can put it to Jesus. In Jesus, we do not have someone, and I want to make this very clear. In Jesus, we do not have someone that will rescue us from our suffering and death. I wish that was, I wish that was the case. I wish that was the case where Jesus would say, I see you suffering. And I, I'm going to be honest, I don't know where you're at. But all of us suffer, and I wish Jesus would be like, I'm just going to remove you from that. I'm going to rescue you. But that's not what the cross does. The cross does not rescue, but rather redeems. God is in the business of the redemption of his people, not simply rescue. Lazarus was not rescued from death so that he could be resurrected from death. To show Mary, to show Martha, to show Lazarus, to show us, our suffering and pain have a purpose to enter into a deeper relationship with him. Again, quoting Ronald Rollizer, the God we believe in doesn't necessarily intervene and rescue us from suffering and death, although we are invited to pray for that. And is, I want to make this clear. This doesn't mean, hey, just suffer like any other Buddhist would say and just be one with suffering. That's not what Christianity preaches. Ask God for rescue, but ultimately trust that even if he does not rescue us, instead he redeems our suffering afterwards. What does this mean for us? Let me leave... Uh, Two practical implications. Uh, one is this, and, and I want to spend the bulk of the uh, closing with this point. Um, you have, if, if Jesus wants to redeem our suffering, I would invite you to see it as this way. Our suffering is an invitation. And I know that's difficult to, to hear. And, and I, I don't mean this coldly. I don't mean this as a way of just, hey, just ignore it. It'll be fine. But just, just etch this into your mind. Our suffering is an invitation. Death is but a gateway to further life and fellowship with God, a commentator put it. And, and, and I read that and I thought about it a little bit longer. What does that mean? How can death be a gateway to a further life and fellowship 
with God. But first we have to realize this. How can, how can our suffering be an invitation? Uh, the, the call to worship verse, I, I didn't you know, plan this, but in 1 Corinthians, Paul writes this. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, of oh, death, is your victory? Where, of oh, death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God, he gives us a victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If Jesus resurrects Lazarus, if Jesus resurrects himself, death has lost its sting. So much of our suffering and pain come from the fear of what death can bring. Man, if, and I'm not just talking about physical death. I'm talking about if that part of me dies, if my, if, if my marriage window dies, if I don't have kids in the right time and that dies, if I don't get the right job and that dies, we often think, oh, that sting is going to end me. And even greater, we're so terrified of physical death, we ignore it. But in all those deaths, what Jesus is saying is death has lost its sting. Uh, a pastor friend put it really well. Um, it's, it's a little bit elementary, but I think it's helpful to picture it this way. Um, I'm terrified of bees uh, because my mom told me early on in my life that I'm allergic. I don't know if I am yet, but I've never been stung, so I'm, I'm terrified. So if I see a bee, I freak out. Like, I just start running. Because why? Like, bees, if you think about it, they're, like, that stinger is just, that's the only thing you think about. But if you think about a bee outside of a stinger, it's, like, it's pretty cute, right? It's, like, it's basically a yellow and black ladybug. Right? And, and, and the purpose of, of a bee is beautiful. It brings life to other flowers. Imagine if a bee lost its sting. Right? Everyone would be like, oh, it's a bee. Come gather and let us look. Right? It's beautiful. Right? And, and the pastor that was giving an example was saying, like, look, don't look at death just like that. Where it's, oh, hey, this guy's suffering. Come gather. Let us look. That's, that's not the point. But the power, the thing that we're so scared of, of whatever death you're scared of, that power is gone. So that even if it comes, even if you lose your job, even if you lose your real estate, even if you lose your family, and God forbid any of that happens, but even if you do, death has lost its sting. What does that mean for us? Suffering is an invitation. See that our pain and suffering is an invitation to deepen not the idea of Jesus, but our relationship with Jesus. And that our relationship, he will provide us beyond our wildest dreams. You know, throughout this story, one thing that John does a really good job at is everyone thinks they know what's going to happen, right? The disciples in the beginning, uh, they tell them, hey, uh, Lazarus is sick and he's going to die. They're like, geez, we've got to go. And then Jesus says, well, Lazarus is asleep. I was like, oh, then we're chilling, right? I said, no, 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 Lazarus is dead, but, dead is, but death is just sleep. And the disciples are like, I, I don't get it. Even Martha, he said, I believe in you, Jesus I believe that somehow Lazarus will return. Not today, but later on. I believe. I believe. So just stay here with me. And Jesus says, oh, just wait what I'm going to do for you in a couple of moments. Even with Mary, she's, she's completely lost herself. And she's like, what are, we, what are you going to do, Jesus? And this is the craziest thing. Think about Lazarus. Think about his point of view. Again, it's very clear that Jesus loves Lazarus. And Lazarus knows that. And most likely, most commentators think this illness was probably some sort of cancer because they just couldn't cure it and they knew it was killing him. And if you think about cancer even today, what it does is there's no cure yet. And any medication, it, it, it hopes to slow it down. But at that time, there's probably nothing to slow it down. And Lazarus feels his death coming. 
And he keeps hearing the story of, oh, hey, did you hear? Jesus healed a man born blind. Hey, dude, your friend Jesus, he healed a royal official's son. Dude, your friend Jesus, he turned water into wine. What is Lazarus thinking? Yo, Jesus, when you come in, I'm dying. And yet even for Lazarus, what Jesus was going to offer him was not just a mere healing, but something much more richer, a resurrection. Your suffering and your pain, even though you can't see it and I can't see it and we can't see it, it's an invitation for God to work his wildest dreams on you. That even though you think, oh, this is as much as I want to be healed, he's going to take it much further, whether we know it or not. And in the same way, don't ever think, if our suffering is an invitation, don't ever think you have to have your life all figured out before coming to Jesus. So many of us, oftentimes, I think the, the hesitation to, to head deep into Christianity is like, I don't, I don't got stuff figured out. I, let me figure out my stuff, and then I'll come to Jesus. All Lazarus had to offer was his cold, dead body, and it was enough for Jesus to make it into life. The only way Jesus can redeem your suffering is if you bring it to him. And this is my second and last point. If that's true, the last thing I want to leave you with, and most important, open your tombs. Open your tombs. Uh, so much of our suffering, pain, and even sin, and our guilt, it's buried deep in the tombs of our soul. Just as there's a huge rock covering the tomb of Lazarus, the same is true for our souls, but we're holding it tight from the inside out. We're terrified to let the stench out. You know, when Martha sees Jesus about to open the tomb, he warns, she warns Jesus, don't open it. It's going to smell disgusting because it's decaying body. And you know what? That, that verse stuck with me because that's so true of how we live our lives. We are terrified to open up to anyone our suffering, our pain, and our sin because we're terrified they're going to smell that stench of fear, of guilt, of shame. Resurrection only awaits you if you simply open your tombs. There's so much freedom that comes just from saying what you're suffering from. Because so often, if we're honest, it, uh, this is more of a self-reflection, we don't even speak it to ourselves. We're horrible at self-diagnosing what we're going through. Rob Reimer put it really well, who's a pastor, and, and I saw this recently on Instagram. Uh, we cannot overcome that which we will not admit we cannot overcome that we will, which will not admit. We cannot be redeemed from what we do not bring. We cannot be healed from what we hide. Light is a gift. It is not an intrusion. Open your tombs. Do this in community. If you think about it in the tomb of Lazarus, Lazarus doesn't open it. It's literally the friends and family have to open that door, that stone. All of us here at True North, the invitation in community is to find people to do that with to open yourselves to, to suffering and pain and sin, to be honest with yourself, to be honest with your community, and to be honest with God so that he can take it and redeem it. Let me end with this. Um, there's a band by the name of King's Kaleidoscope, and the lead singer is by the name of Chad Gardner. Um, he, he's, he's a brilliant dude. I, I've had the honor to, to sit with him a couple times and, and eat food with him, and uh, he, he suffers anxiety attacks every day. To a point where he cannot function. And if you, if you don't know what an anxiety attack is, it literally your adrenaline's pumping. You cannot think straight. You feel like you're about to die, like emotionally. And Chad, he goes through that every day as a Christian. 
And if you don't know, um, there's a podcast called uh, The Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. He's the one that writes the song in the beginning. And there's a song on one of his albums he calls A Prayer. And the whole song is him going back and forth with Jesus saying, Jesus, where are you? Am I still beside you? Because all I feel is death. And let me, they're not profound words, but they've always hit me deeply. And they're simple. And let me end with this. Chad writes this at the end as Jesus talking to Chad. I'm right beside you. I feel what you feel. I'm here to hold you when death is too real. You know I died too. I was terrified, but I gave myself for you. I was crucified because I love you. I love you, child. In the darkness of your suffering and pain, and even in the face of death, it feels like Jesus has left. And I invite you to look to the cross to be reminded he has not. He may not take you and rescue you from your suffering, but I promise you he has not left. And with time, he will redeem whatever you are going through. So allow us to open our tombs to him. Let's pray.